IndieCast is presented by Uproxx's Indie Mixtape. Hello everyone and welcome to IndieCast. On this show we talk about the biggest indie news of the week, we review albums, and we hash out trends. In this episode we talk about the career and legacy of Mac DeMarco. My name is Stephen Hyden, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host. I wonder what he thinks of the new national album cover. Ian Cohen. Ian, how are you? Yeah, I was so excited when I won the Ticketmaster VIP pre-order to like design this album cover, but it seems like people aren't particularly pleased with my handiwork right now. Uh, I'm <laughs> bummed out. So, the National, they announced <laughs> a new album this week. Uh it's called uh is it the first two pages of frankenstein the first two pages of frankenstein yes that's the name of the album and the cover how would you describe this it's like a kid (laughs) and i'm I'm bringing it up right now like do you have it in front of you yeah it's a kid holding like a like a head Head of some sort like a mannequin head and i mean look i uh, we've talked about this a lot on this podcast about how i like a lot of bands who have like either bands that I'm names that I'm embarrassed to say out loud and or terrible cover art. And it's like, you know, sometimes it's both like symbols, eat guitars, but I mean, I, I expect bad album art from like animal collective or like Deftones, you know, bands that maybe are like, are kind of hippie ish or don't have a great grasp on how tasteful they are. I mean, Matt Berninger was a graphic designer. Wasn't he? Like, I don't expect bad album art from bands like the national, right? Well, Okay. Is this cover bad, though? <laughs> I'm going to play devil's advocate with this. So, again, we have the kid. Yes. And the kid is tinted pink, mm-hmm. and he's against, like, a, a gray backdrop, and he's holding a mannequin head, and there's a name tag on the forehead that, that says Paul. So, I don't know if this is alluding to maybe, like, a lyric on the record. Maybe that's what it is, or if this is just a purely abstract thing. I think it's the font that's bothering people. Like, it's very 2012-ish, uh, you know, group love, walk the moon. Like, that kind of post-Passion Pit major label indie rock uh, thing well, going on. we got to shout out uh, the Indie Heads podcast. Yes. The, one of the hosts of that show, uh, Maddie Monroe, uh, did a tweet that you're referencing yes. there where he said that this is like, <laughs> a walk the moon ass cover, a, <laughs> yeah. a, a Cold War kids ass cover, and he, he runs down a bunch of bands like that. And I I saw that tweet and I laughed, and then I realized like I'm laughing at this because I know what he's talking about, but I don't think I've ever seen a Walk the Moon album cover or a Group Love album cover. I just understand that like okay, this is maybe the kind of cover you would associate with a group like that. So. I don't know. I just thought it was funny because it's like I get the reference, even though I don't have a concrete reference point exactly uh, for for what the joke is. Um, I'm just wondering, like, does something like this have like meme potential? You know, where uh, there's some quality there because we already saw that with. Uh, we're going to talk about this album in a minute. There's been a lot of big indie release news this week. That there's a new Boy Genius album coming out in March. It's their first full-length album. I saw that album cover being memed already because it's like the three of their hands reaching up, mm-hmm. and uh, I think it was the like uh, 
the double whammy <laughs> record label. They did a thing like where you know they had that cover. They put Pearl Jam. Oh yeah, at the course. top in the Pearl Jam ten font, which of course I especially appreciated. Um, I was thinking about national album covers, and I'm actually I don't think that they have a great batting average. Shocking, shockingly average for like a band who's like known for their tastefulness and their history and graphic design like i mean i'll excuse the older ones because you know very much of the time and you know no one knew who they were but i think most of them are like pretty okay like the only ones i don't really i think i think trouble will find me is just a terrible album cover uh and i'm easy to find also kind of in that uh cold cold war kids like spotify festival uh sort of vein as well but otherwise i, th- I like sleep well beast i like boxer uh, alligator i don't feel particularly one way or the other which is fine um but yeah i just i just love how like this album cover is just so suspect that it it, it brings their entire catalog into question well, I I'll go as far to say that I think Boxer is a really good album cover. I like that cover. I think the Sleep Well Beast cover is quite good. Mm-hmm. It's got a house on it. I got I got I got. If it's got a house on it, I gotta love it. So and it's and it's their studio. It's uh, the April not April base. That's the Bunny Bear Studio. I can't remember if the National Studio has a name. I think it does. But anyway, I kind of like the first album cover too. Like where you know. You've got like the drummer. Oh yeah. <laughs> shirtless on the cover. That one's cla that one's great. That one's like, you know, dance like no one's watching type album cover. I gotta sh- Brian Devendorf gotta shout shout you out there. Uh but yeah, a lot of their covers have a similar color palette where it's like a white gray background and then there's like flashes of color mm-hmm. on it. Like that's like the high violet cover. Uh I'm easy to find has a similar color palette. This album cover does, and I just don't really like that color palette really for an album cover. Uh, they put out a single too. I guess we should talk about the music eh. as well. What, what fun is that? Uh, tropical morning news. Is it tropical morning? No, it's tropic morning news. Yes. Um, I heard them play this song uh, live when I saw them last summer, and also I was listening to some live recordings that were up on uh, the live archive web live archive website. And I liked this song a lot live. And I have to say, I really like this single. I have, I wasn't a fan of their previous record. Like I'm a big national fan, but I am easy to find is like the first of their albums that never really grew on me. Mm-hmm. There's like about five, six songs that I, that I quite like. And the rest feels a little like a rehash of sleep. Well, beast. And it's just like too many songs on it. I think it feels a little, overstuffed yeah i really like this song though i don't know have you listened to the song yeah it kind of it gave me like high violet vibes and you know relative to the recent material there's like actually quite a bit of guitar on here there's like an outro guitar solo that i really like which they were doing on the road and i'm glad that they kept that and didn't just put like pianos in there like mm-hmm. which is what they've been doing lately like these sort of low-key piano ballads like with skittering beats like mm-hmm. that's been the mo yeah. I'm, so this was this, this was like relatively guitar heavy, so I was into that. Yeah, I mean, like 
I, I mean, I'm I'm like a big national fan as well, and like I have no memories of listening not to I Am Easy to Find in full. Like I liked a couple songs on it, but I just figured I always thought of it as like a soundtrack more than like a proper national album. Plus, with all like the guest spots and whatnot, uh, the new one it holds serve. I mean, like I feel like more and more like most national songs feel like they exist kind of entirely in the national world. Uh, like it's there, it it's like. Matt Ber- Matt Berninger like putting together like scraps of lyrics from like older songs and putting them together and they all kind of like still sound like the national like I'm not like excited about this in the same way that I was with the Sleep Well Beast lead single um or like the Trouble Will Find Me lead single and I'm not as like you know whatever it's just going to be the national doing national so I'm like cautiously optimistic i don't think i'm as like won over by this song as you are but i also don't have the same background and like seeing them live i mean i think this is where you know your jam band like um you know (laughs) like uh website uh crawler uh background comes in you know because like oh yeah i heard the boots man i'm like yeah exactly you gotta dig into the boots yeah i have no sense of like what their critical standing is at this point like piggybacking on your point they they do seem like they've reached a stage where they're just the national and it doesn't really matter really like what is written about them at this point you're going to get the usual suspects who make the same points about them being just like a boring dad rock band you know mm-hmm. and those people come out of the woodwork every time this band does anything and then you get the people and I guess I'm in this camp. We're just going to be amenable to what they do. Yeah. You know, it's like the liberals and conservatives, the red <laughs> and the blue of the national world. They're going to be entrenched. And then maybe you have the 10% in the middle who are like the independents. Maybe you're in the, you're, you're, you're like in the middle, I guess. Uh, you're, you're like a, you're like a swing voter with the national where you might go with the red or you might go with the blue. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, God, I mean, from like 25 to 30, this was maybe the most important band in my life. And I I just find it ironic that like now that I'm, you know, a national, I'm like the stereotypical national fan or like what they were always seen as, which is like, you know, a 42 year old married guy with like a day job. And it's like, yeah, this music just doesn't hit as hard as I did when I was like 25 and couldn't relate to this stuff at all. Um, you know, like I do think that... Um, I'm like totally open to whatever this album is going to bring. Um, but you know, for, for the past decade, I've been a little cool on the national. I just think that like, you know, the, like they're going to get like jokes about dad rock and then, you know, it's going to end up being reviewed by people who like them. So they're, it's kind of like in that Wilco world now where, you know, you probably won't see it on too many year end lists, but like you won't find like any pans. Yeah, I, they're an interesting band because more than I would have assumed, they've been around long enough that the, where there are people who prefer certain eras over the other ones. I mean, you would suspect that there'd be people, and these would be the fans around our age, that are big boxer and alligator partisans. But I see a lot of people who are like, 2010s national is better than 2000s national and there is like a contingent out there for whom like this recent era is the era huh. and 
because Aaron Desner now has this Taylor Swift right, association, right. I do wonder like if this record is going to make a bigger splash. Well, it's got Phoebe and Sufjan and... Uh... and... And Taylor Swift's on it, too. Oh, okay, yeah. So, and these are the this is the first album they've put out since those Taylor Swift records that Aaron Desner made with her. So... Uh, I am curious to see how that affects it. They're like if you go see the National now, I feel like if they're gonna play like the Geese of Beverly Road, <laughs> there are people who like are gonna walk out and get the beer during that song, which which seems incredible, maybe for some people uh-huh. like, to conceive of. But I, you know, they're, they're, I've been to national shows like where alligator deep cuts were it was like crickets. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's just like a different. <laughs> kind of shifting demographic i because like i do wonder to what degree the people that love them in the aughts have moved on and have been replaced by a new audience yeah it's an interesting thing with them um we have to talk about the new boy genius record that was announced this week it's called the record Mm. uh comes out in march uh it's their first full-length album they put out that ep when was that 2018 2018 and they're playing uh coachella yeah, they're playing Coachella. That that was like a big deal. Like that and Jai Paul, uh, if I pronounce that correctly, were like the big movers. Yeah, the, yeah, Jai Paul, who's like, does he still only have like three songs or something? He has a bunch of songs, but like no proper albums. They're, they're, that's a, that's a whole like other rabbit hole, uh, you know. But uh, yeah, like boy, we gotta, yeah, we got we got we got to do a Jai Paul episode close to. <laughs> that's what the people want. <laughs> um, but in uh, Boy Genius, I imagine. We'll be playing other big festivals. Yes. They're probably going to do a tour. Right before we started recording, uh, Rolling Stone dropped their latest uh, magazine cover, and it's Boy Genius on the cover, and they're dressed up like Nirvana Mm -hmm. was on the cover of Rolling Stone. It must have been 93, like when they're all... But not the corporate magazine suck cover. (laughs) No, the, the one where they're all wearing suits. Yes. And, you know... I think it's a funny cover. I enjoyed it. I know that there'll be people who are like, you can't compare them to Nirvana, man. Like, what the fuck? Uh, and the headline says something like, this is the super group we need. We need. We. The royal we. The, the royal, royal we, we coming yeah. out. Um, I thought it was funny. It, and it does bring to mind the cover of their EP where they're posed like Crosby, Stills, and Nash on the cover of their first album. Mm-hmm. So, Boy Genius, definitely, they know their music history. They can wink at it, uh, you know, as they're recreating these poses. Um, they they release three songs from the record, one from each songwriter in the band. And, of course, for those who don't know, it's Phoebe Bridgers, Lucy Dacus, and Julian Baker. I like all three songs. This is a group that, like, I could see myself being annoyed by because there is, like, a lot of cult of personality around them. But I I like all three songwriters individually. I I happen to think that they come together quite well. They are compatible, but they're also pretty different as songwriters. And I think it's interesting how they come together. Um, I do wonder at what point are we going to reach critical mass with the sort of wistful, sad singer-songwriter sound, which has been so dominant in indie uh, lately. Like this week, you showed this to me. Someone was passing around a clip of Tune Yards. This happens like three times every single year. (laughs) And it was basically to say, like, I can't believe that this shit was critically acclaimed once upon a time. Mm -hmm. And I saw that clip, and I'm not a huge Tune Yards fan, but it did actually make me 
a little wistful missing that era of indie, that sort of more antagonistic era. But it also brought home that like the things that are in vogue now are going to seem tired in 10 years. And I wonder at what point are we going to reach that with this sound? I don't know. I'm throwing a lot of things out there. Do you, do you have any thoughts on Boy Genius at this point? Like, did you listen to those songs? Like, where do you stand with yeah, them? I mean, I listened to the three songs. I thought they were all very well constructed. I like $20 the most because it's got the scream and it's got, like, you know, distorted guitars. I mean, I think there's, like, this air of tastefulness surrounding this project, which I find a little bit off-putting. But, like, I know it's, like, totally a personal thing. Um, I'm going to like tread on your territory here and like, I don't know, take a little bit of a risk by comparing the writing on these songs to that of White Lotus in that, like, I know it's good. It's very well constructed, very clever, but also I hear these songs and I just think of like them being screen capped or whatever the musical equivalent is. Um, and it's, uh, it's odd because like, this is the exact sort of project that should appeal to me as like, you know, a former net, a current national fan, you know, it's like very singer songwritery. Nothing about this should make me feel old, but it's the exact things that you mentioned, which is like the parasocial component of like quoting the tweets online and feeling like emotionally invested in like their success as a reflection upon myself. Like I can't generate that for myself. And so for me, this would be like a pleasant singer songwriter project, which means that the discrepancy between that and like how they're actually received makes me feel a little bit annoyed. And yeah, I do. Uh, you know, th- that the thing about the two yards clip is like, yeah, I kind of miss that too. You know, like I miss that. Um, yeah, the kind of unpredictability or just like the ability to like look at a piece of music and or hear it and think, yeah, I can understand why people would not like this just based on the music. You know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of the criticism of Boy Genius is centered around the exact thing you said about like the discourse around it. Like how many times when we talk about like music here and we like air our qualms or air our annoyances, it's always about the discourse or like the people surrounding it, you know? Well, you know, getting back to like the tune yards comparison. I mean, I I think the complaint that people have with a group like boy genius, and you could also apply this to the national is the idea of it being down the line and not having any sort of like abrasive element or an obvious sonic experimentation element, even though I think Mm -hmm. with the national, there's like a lot of experimentation going on. It's just, uh, very nuanced and sort of minute. <laughs> yeah. It's not like a it's not a brash type of experimentation that you would get with a lot of these arty indie bands that existed in the time of Tune Yards. Uh, you know, I have to say, like part of my interest in Boy Genius is sort of the classic rockiness of the project. You know, the fact that it is very easy to liken it to like a Crosby, Stills, and Nash. You know, these three stars coming together and making a record. And I do think that. The things that make each writer unique is emphasized in this project where like Phoebe Bridger sounds even more like Elliot Smith in mm-hmm. this band. Uh, Julian Baker seems even more intense in this project. Lucy Dacus, who I think wrote the best song out of the Boy Genius songs mm-hmm. that just were released. She was my favorite. She really comes across as like the most sort of like observational writer. Uh, most careful writer in a way out of the three. Uh, so I like that aspect of it. And, you know, I like to imagine that it is a CSN 
and sometimes why situation <laughs> like where behind the scenes it's very toxic and they're fighting and there's like you know all of this drama going on even though by all accounts they seem to get along really well yeah. and they seem like very uh sort of like a stable unit i do want them to be more like those <laughs> bitchy divas in Crosby, Stills, and Nash, uh, who are just at each other's throats like for like fifty years, uh, I really like that aspect of it. Um, Wait, I, I saw that like Jason was contributing some instruments, so like maybe she's the uh, Neil Young of this. Oh, yeah, that'd be interesting. Yeah. So it'd be, yeah, I like that. I idea. want a new Jason album. Oh yeah, hell yeah! When was the last time? Two thousand nineteen. Oh wow! Okay, so I bet she dropped something this year. Yeah, fingers crossed. Put the put the money down for that. Um, <clears throat> can we do like a quick TV cast segment here? I think we have uh, to. Like, I, I've been like watching way more TV than I have been listening to music. If we're going to be honest, so let, let's let's go there. Okay, I got to do a quick TV cast here. We might need like a TV cast theme song, by the way. <laughs> uh, talking talking to Brian here, we might need like a quick TV cast thing just to separate it from indie cast. Um, if you remember, like last month, we ranked the popular arts where we had sports at number one, music at number two, cinema at number three, and TV at number four. Now, you said you're watching a lot of TV now, so maybe you would re-rank that. For nope. me, TV is like a... <laughs> TV mean, still like mostly a, sucks. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I hate TV right now. Uh, I hate prestige TV the most it's just totally become a cliche but there is a show that i fell in love with this month and i want to talk about it and i don't know if you've seen the show it's on paramount plus so not on one of the major streamers tulsa king yeah um, oh yeah <laughs> with sylvester stallone have you seen the show <laughs> okay so this is like my favorite new show on tv and i've not watched a single episode um, I'm going to just get out myself here. Like one of the things I've been doing with the time that's been, uh, freed up by not having a lot of music come out is I'm listening to a uh, Chapo trap house and they had an episode where they just basically explained the plot of this show, like without embellishment, without any exaggeration, like a lot of Stallone, uh, accents. And it's, it was the funniest thing I've heard. Like, I understand like Sylvester Stallone's like 75 years old, but like, he can kill somebody with a single punch and also women find him sexually irresistible, but it's like uh, kind of a fish out of water mob show. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Sly, he plays this like mafia, like, like, like capo who goes to prison for 25 years and he comes out and his bosses are like, we're going to send you to Tulsa to start up a new business there. And it's not really clear why they're doing this <laughs> but they they send him to tulsa and he ends up meeting martin Starr, who some may know from freaks and geeks others may know from, from silicon valley yes and he's like in in uh star is running like a weed dispensary and, and sly comes in and he like takes over the weed dispensary and he starts like doing like other um moves around town but then it turns out that there's like a biker gang <laughs> That runs the town. They they run like the nitrous market. <laughs> Little sons of like, anarchy kind of flavoring in here. It's very kind of jam bandy too. Like, <laughs> they have like the night like like the nitrous tanks. There's like a big plot about like fighting over nitrous tanks in Tulsa. And 
like you said, like Sly, I think he's like 76, okay. although he might be playing 75 on the show. <laughs> uh, and, and look, it looks Sly, Sly looks great. I mean, we should all hope to look as good as Sly at 76, but yeah, he's still 76 years old and he's yeah killing people with his bare hands. He's like betting women like 30 years his junior. Um, but it's great. It's like such a dumb show. But it's extremely watchable. I love Sly Stallone, personally. A magnetic lead actor. All the supporting cast are like people that you've seen in other shows. Like I said, Martin Starr is on there. You have Max Casella, who was on Doogie Hauser and Vinny, he right? He was Vinny Del Pino, right? He was Vinny Del Pino. And then he was on The Sopranos for a while. Um, the bald cop from The Wire <laughs> is in it. Uh, he plays sort of like the antagonist in the show. Um, and it's just a show that like you put it on every episode is 36 to 40 minutes. So not too long, very entertaining. No one's going to write a think piece calling it like a incisive social satire of modern day norms. There's pronouns talk on that show though, right? Yeah. There's like a pronouns joke. <laughs> uh, it's like, okay. Uh, there's this great scene where, uh, Sly's crossing the street and uh, the the like the you know, like the walk sign says uh, like you may cross now. And uh, S- uh, Salone says to the machine, "I've been I've been waiting my whole life." <laughs> uh, I've heard like that's like, the, the the tenor for every single line on this show. So yeah, a lot of dumb jokes, but again, very entertaining. I had like a smile on my face the entire time I was watching it, and uh, yeah, like in. You're not going to have people taking it too seriously. It it doesn't pretend to be anything more than it is. It's escapist junk, you know, which is what most TV is. But there's like so much crap attached to TV now. You can't just have an escapist junk type TV show. And that's what Tulsa King is. Yeah. Taylor Sheridan, man. Like, uh, I- I'm surprised we haven't done like a, like, you know, tried to like link that to Maniskin or whatever that band is who's dropping this week like too much too much indie stuff happened uh we we could have easily gone with the uh you know the the taylor sheridan extended universe i think maniskin would be in there right yeah we gotta talk about maniskin at a future yes their album came out this week but that that might have a long tail yes i think i'm gonna write a column about them someone wrote a column about is this the band that's gonna save rock and roll like boy give me a break (laughs) Let's get to our mailbag segment. Yes. Uh, Thank you all for writing in. Uh, It's always great to hear from our listeners. Uh, You can hit us up at IndieCastMailbag at gmail.com. Do you want to read our letter? I do. So this comes from Aaron from New York by way of Iowa, which is kind of a reverse Tulsa King uh, or Des Moines King or whatever. No, that's the Tulsa King path because he's – wait, no. No, he's from New York via Iowa, not the other way around. You're right. You're right. Yes, it's a reverse. It's a, it's a reverse Tulsa King situation. It's a debut king. Um, Steve and Ian, long time, first time. I'm a strange pay pig that has both an Apple Music and a Spotify subscription, mostly to listen to Bandsplain. Shout out to Bandsplain. Uh, yeah, Yasi, give yeah. a shout out. I think we both been on that, right? Oh yeah. Oh cool. yeah. I've noticed that the top five songs for an artist on the two platforms are often different. Anecdotally, it seems like Apple Music's top songs are mostly from the band's most popular album, while Spotify's are more like a greatest hits. 
It got me thinking about the differences between Spotify and Apple Music audiences and how their listening patterns might affect what new what music new listeners find. So, what do you think? Do Spotify and Apple Music have drastically different audiences? And if they do, how do you think this shapes what music becomes popular on each platform? So, is it true? I, I have both Apple and Spotify as well. Do you have both? Uh, I have both, but like, I mean, if we're talking about a Spotify or a Apple Music audience, I guess I'm the audience. But the thing about Apple Music is like, I don't feel like part of an audience. It's strictly a tool for me because... I use it to consolidate streaming and, uh, you know, stuff I have on my hard drive, such as, um, you know, like rap mixtapes from like 2005 or the OG Jens Lechman, Night Falls Over Cordadala. Um, and, you know, the, the streaming quality is higher. But like everything else about Apple Music, like that would in t- in connote an audience such as, you know, like the social component and discovery playlists and all that. It all sucks terribly on Apple Music. Like Apple Music in a lot of ways is for people who like kind of already know what they want to listen to. And yeah, my taste of my, my listening habits have narrowed a lot since I switched over to Apple Music. Um, so I, I, th- I do wonder though, like, uh, you know, Bearing the question, if there are like certain bands or songs that are more popular specifically on Apple Music than like say Spotify, like if it's like the VH1 to Spotify's MTV, uh, I think like the statistics on Spotify also trend towards like younger audiences who want to you know follow that the same way they follow TRL or whatever. Uh, I don't know. Like I wish I could get the information like whether whether there are certain bands that like do really well on Apple music, like relative to how they do on Spotify. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I do buy into the idea that Apple music is the thinking man's app (laughs) in this regard for the reasons that you said that if you have an actual library, you need Apple music in order to, you know, actually stream it on your phone or wherever you want to stream things. Like for you, it's like rap mixtapes. And for me, it's like, Grateful Dead bootlegs and <laughs> other things I've downloaded over the years. Um, so that's why I have Apple Music. I I think Spotify just as 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 a app is much easier to use. You know, Incredibly Apple Music easier to use. Apple's pretty buggy. I feel like every month or so there's some weird thing where it's not syncing my library the way I want it to, which is like the only thing I need Apple Music to do. <laughs> Seriously. Um, and they can't pull it off. Um the social aspect of it is something that I have mixed feelings about because there are times where I'm on Spotify and I'm like, I don't want people knowing what I listen to. Because mm. sometimes I, I get people on Twitter who are like, oh, I see that you're listening to, uh, you know, Ambrosia, the best part of me uh, on uh, Spotify. I don't even know what that is. Right <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a Yacht Rock favorite. Okay. You should look it up. Uh, <laughs> And I don't want that. I don't want people knowing my business. And I know that you can set it to private, but and I'm going to switch to my Sly Stallone voice. I don't know how to switch it. Uh, this modern technology. I'm, I've been in prison over here for 25 years. Um, so the social aspect I'm not as big on. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to look at how many Apple Music subscribers are actually using it as a streaming app and not just as like a listen to my library app. Because mm-hmm. most of the people I know that have Apple Music are in the position that we're in. It's just because they want to play music that they've downloaded. 
and it's a it's it's like the easiest way to stream your library that there is out there uh but yeah i mean i think spotify in general and just from like what uh you know our listener was talking about how it's on apple music it's more people listening to an album Mm -hmm. versus on spotify it's just picking the greatest hits essentially that's kind of an interesting thing i i wonder if if apple music skews older if it also skews towards people who listen to albums versus playlists or you know just picking songs that they like Hmm. yeah i mean for 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 spotify the private like that what i would do is like if i wanted to listen to like you know a canceled artist like i'd have to make sure that was checked off. And, you know, I do like Spotify was good for me when I wanted to just like listen to when I wanted to go like deep on like, hey, I want to hear bands that were kind of similar to the Verve, but, uh, right. you know, not the Verve. And then I get like uh, just very, very deep into it. And, you know, Apple Music's like fans also like uh, component just sucks like terribly. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a it's you know, it's, it's a bit of a trade off. Uh, also just my life has changed to the point where like, I can't listen to music for like two straight hours. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I just wish there was a third way. I I really wish maybe Amazon music is like really just like completely awesome. It just has like such bad PR. All right. Well, let's get to the meat of our episode. And, uh, I think we might've missed our 30 minute guarantee again. We've been bad with the 30 minute guarantee. Have we made that guarantee, or is that just like kind of a kind of a running gag? I well, you know, (laughs) we're not going to be sending out checks to our listeners or anything, but you know, it's a it's an honorary guarantee. It's a it's a gentleman's agreement with our audience that we get to the meet before thirty minutes. But you know, you got national talk, got boy genius talk. We didn't even get we didn't even get into like Wednesday or Arlo Parks. Like we got like Obama's twenty twenty three (laughs) playlist, like. 75% 75% done. It's not even the end of January. We don't know that Obama's on the Wednesday train yet. I can you see know, it. He usually puts like a Sharon Van Etten song or like an, something along those lines. Like, I don't think it's like a, I don't think it's a, a far leap to assume that might be the thing that he does. Can I just say, by the way, Obama, get out of the music writing business. Wait, who do you <laughs> think you are? Seriously, tens of millions of dollars in your bank account. Your, your former president... It's tough enough for music writers out here. You got to like, like stay in your lane, dude. Come on. <laughs> Who's this guy think he is? I don't know, man. If I again, this is sort of like the Elon Musk argument. It's like if you had billions of dollars, like why would you like be on Twitter twenty four seven? It's like, man, if I had that much money and didn't have to work, I would probably just spend my life entirely based on bullshit. So I kind of understand that. Yeah. Well, and look, <laughs> let's be real. Obama is listening to like the same like. 10 Stevie Wonder songs on repeat. I mean, he's not Which is not a bad move, man. (laughs) Exactly. You're like, you know, how old is Obama now? Is he in his 50s or is he in his 60s yet? I I don't know. He's He's definitely not Tulsa King status right now, but. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, he's an older guy. I'm just saying, you don't need to be dipping into like, uh, you know, you don't have to be listening to like watching Anthony Fantano videos (laughs) to keep up with uh, the latest music. I, I just feel like. You got better things to do with your time, Obama. Yeah, but Obama's going to be super into like Death Grips and uh, Black Country New Road this time if he's really watching Fantano. Well, let's get to our meat. We keep delaying the meat here. <laughs> uh, 
Mac DeMarco. Yeah. And this is this is an episode we've talked about doing for a while because you like to take shots at Mac DeMarco. You're not a fan of him, and mm. we have a, we have an occasion to talk about him this week because he has a new album out. Although it's not really like a proper album, it's a record of instrumentals. It's called Five Easy Hot Dogs, <laughs> uh, which. If you can say that album title without smiling or laughing, uh, you're a stronger man than I am, or a stronger person than I am. Um, you know, we were just talking about the National and Boy Genius, big indie stars. Mac DeMarco is a big indie star. This record is really under the radar. I have not heard anyone talking about this album, and I, the reason is obvious, because it's an instrumentals record, and it's kind of a funny hook for us to finally talk about Mac DeMarco because it's not like a major record from him. And it really is the kind of record that like no one could put out this album unless you were a big star, you know, yeah. like, like no one would submit this album as an unknown artist and expect it to get released. Like this would be like a straight to band camp type situation. So it's kind of a funny reason to be talking about him. Did you even listen to this album? I couldn't find it, man. Like the, I, it's just like one of those situations. Like, yeah, we've seen Ian shit on this band, this artist, so we're not going to send him the promo. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm like dying to listen to it because I mean, I can say that you know, regardless of my feelings about Mac DeMarco, um, you know, he's very influential for the reasons we've you know we'll discuss. Like, he has a very distinct guitar tone, which is uh come up all over the place like in modern music not just in like indie realm but um yeah i mean like you take it's like kind of garfield without garfield um you know you take away the mac demarco like vocal presence and like just the kind of attitude towards it and i don't know maybe i like it so but yeah i think this well, is a, i think this is a good reason to talk about mac demarco i mean it's a covid era album from what i understand so you know these were things that he was working on uh you know during lockdown and you know, it's very pleasant. The music is nice. It just feels like, oh, I would have liked to have heard these turned into songs. Mm. You know, it just feels like this is material that he had in the vault that he didn't actually turn into songs and he's putting it out. It makes me wonder if there's like a full-fledged Mac DeMarco record coming down the road in like this year and this is just a appetizer, if you will. I would I would think that. I, I'd be surprised if he put this out and then didn't put out a full-fledged record for like another year or two that seems like kind of a weird thing to do it's been a while since he put out a proper album like as you corrected me on a previous episode i thought it was uh you know this old dog but it was the 2018 album i'm gonna get this wrong is it i am the cowboy or be what uh, mitski's was be the cowboy right yeah his was, was something here, else here comes the cowboy that's it yes <clears throat> and uh yeah there was a weird backlash against that album because it's People were accusing him of like, I don't know what stolen like, valor or whatever. <laughs> You're taking cowboy, yeah, ownership from 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 Mitski. Um, I want to throw something out to you because you know, just talking about Mac DeMarco and where he stands at the moment because I think he is at an interesting place in his career. He was obviously, I think, one of the defining indie artists of the 2010s. People, I think, generally would agree with that. He also seems like the kind of artist that I can't imagine becoming a star in 2023. Like there's elements of his persona that seem so unfashionable at this point 
You know, it's like he kind of is like the last version of what he was that would have been able to become like a media darling. You know, like the semi-ironic white male dirtbag. I can't see that at all being something that music websites and publications would embrace now. Um, I really want to get your take on like why this guy rubs you the wrong way, but I want to throw something out at you first, my theory on him. And I'm going to make a very specific comparison here to the, to the Decembris. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm going to walk with you on this, but yeah, I'm dying. Not at all, goes. not at all musical, not oh. a musical comparison, but this is just something specific to how the Decembris were talked about in the aughts where, you had people who do not like indie rock or indie music who used the Decembrists as a symbol of what they didn't like. And back then, it was this sort of bookish theatricality, uh, this, for lack of a better term, like NPR, upper middle class uh, studiousness, where you're talking about like chimney sweeps and (laughs) sea captains and and shit like that. Like that was something, if you didn't like indie music, you latched onto the Decembrists and you said, this is what I don't like. And I'm going to pile on this band and essentially blame them (laughs) for all these things I don't like, which of course is unfair, but you know, you have to sacrifice uh, the lamb, you know, to satisfy the crowd. And that was the sacrificial lamb at that time. And I think for the 2010s, like Mac DeMarco was that person where with Mac DeMarco, it was like, he's this hipster dude who plays low key melodic music. That's pretty soft and not aggressive. And it's combined with this, like I said, semi-ironic dirtbag persona. And that's something that you could see in other acts at the time, but it was like Mac DeMarco was like, if I want to just rail against what I see as maybe non-passionate, non-aggressive indie music, Mac DeMarco was my target. Does any of that make sense as someone who doesn't like Mac DeMarco? Do you think that that is what he was a symbol of in that era? You know, I really think you stuck the landing on that one because we start out with like, you know, the Decemberists making song like, 20 minute like song suites about Russian czars and Mac DeMarco's like, I like cigarettes. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I think they both have, they, they both bear a lot of symbolism and, you know, because no one can ever say I don't commit to the bit. I revisited uh, the Mac DeMarco discography leading up to this episode, starting with two, which was the first one I heard. And um, yeah, it, it, it's like when I listen, I'm like, yeah, this is everything I don't like. Um, that the first like uh i always love revisiting like career artists who i just very much dislike during their time after there's like enough distance from like the chatter surrounding it or maybe the people who like this music that like i didn't get along with or no longer in music writing um and two starts out with a song called like cooking up something good and it just reminds me not just of like the chill indie stuff that like aggravated me in the early um in the early 2010s but also kind of like a weird g love and special sauce sort of thing going on as well um it kind of horde tourish um so yeah you combine those two things and also the fact that you know like mac demarco became this cause celeb amongst people who 
during especially like the peak of Mac DeMarco, like two and salad days, like were totally against like the stuff I listened to. It was hard not to be resentful about that. Like um, our pal Larry Fitzmaurice wrote a substack on his uh, page, Last Donut of the Night, where he talks about like how if you're in the music biz, if you're a music writer for long enough, you get this kind of brain rot where you're just like seeing chess moves in advance of like your other fellow writers, especially if you have to write for a publication where you have editors and whatnot. And, you know, Mac DeMarco just struck me as like the epitome of like things that were being elevated over the shit that I like. So it was hard not to be resentful. And especially because there was like, like you said, this kind of like dirt bag. Oh, who me persona. Um, I don't think we, I don't think we can really over exaggerate how influential Mac DeMarco was not just as like, musically but like as a style icon i mean did you ever get a sense of that oh yeah yeah the you know the ball cap and like the uh you know the loose fitting kind of uh, our hearts yeah yeah and you know, like you said the cigarettes and and the, where it's like it's a dirt bag but a dirt bag with a heart of gold yeah type thing where <laughs> like you said like the you know, like the who me type thing mm-hmm. uh the gap tooth was also a big part of it i mean yeah like and it's interesting with him because and i'm gonna make another comparison here that won't make sense initially but i think in a very specific way holds water which is in a way i feel like mac demarco is an indirect influence on Phoebe Bridgers in the sense that if you listen to Phoebe Bridgers music, it's sad, it's melancholy. There's a melodic element to it. That's pretty much divorced from how she presents herself on social media or in interviews where she's really funny and brash and uh, has almost like a California dude type yeah. like lilt in her voice yeah you know, like like the like the, like if you've ever interviewed phoebe bridgers the way she talks versus the way she sings it's i won't call it incongruous because like most people are like that they don't talk the way they sing but with her it seems like a little more pronounced because again you get an elliot smith vibe from her music but like in person she's more like a jeff spicoli type person uh, yeah and, life t- lifelong it, la person you know and and very charming in that regard she's very fun to talk to um and demarco has, has a similar thing where if you just listen to the music there is a sensitive low-key melodic aspect to it that doesn't really line up necessarily with the way he presents himself i have to say that like i've always liked mac demarco without quite loving him you know i i came on board with the same record you were talking about before too and it is funny like how he backdoored a lot of 90s and aughts frat guy music Mm -hmm. into indie music you you mentioned g11 special sauce you know there is like a little Dave Matthews in there. A lot of Dave on Matthews, two. yeah. <laughs> and like, even like, you know, stuff like Jason Mraz or something like that. <laughs> I mean, there is like a little bit of that, like in the strummy kind of like good time, we're hanging out on a beach type music. Although I guess in his case, it'd be like we're hanging out on someone's like fire escape in Brooklyn yeah, or whatever. Like some just um, grimy ass couch. Like this is just like straight up to me, like. I'm thinking of like college dorm. You got like the poster of like Tyler the Creator's goblin on the wall, and <laughs> right. like, this is like yeah. I, I think it's like the 10 year anniversary stuff of 2013. I'm seeing lately, which makes me realize like this and like Odd Future are 
almost like the Pink Floyd poster or like the John Belushi college poster. Um, yeah, like we're just going to need like very different benchmarks on which to talk about the college experience. I, I think that the critical record for him is the one that comes after two, which is Salad Days that came out in 2014. Apple Music to calls me, that the essential album of Mac DeMarco. You know, I know that you're a Chill Wave fan. And I feel like that's the album where you start to get more chill wave type elements. It's not a pure uh, expression of that aesthetic, but there is something, you know, sort of faded and blurry and nostalgic about his music where like a chill wave record, it it feels like you're listening to something from the seventies, but like on a fifth generation cassette tape, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like a little warped but it has a lot of the same melodic qualities of older music. And I like that record quite a bit. Again, I think with Mac DeMarco, like I'm always drawn in by the music of what he does. Lyrically, it's a little, uh, it hasn't really reached me. And I think that that's what prevents me from getting fully on board in the way that I am for like, say father John Misty is on a parallel track with Mac DeMarco in a lot of ways. But I think the lyrical element with Father John Misty is what pushes him ahead for me. Whereas with Mac DeMarco, I like Salad Days. I like to This Old Dog, which came, that's the record after Salad Days. I like that record. It never quite moves beyond pretty music for me into something deeper. So that would be my thing, but definitely like it more than you do. Mm-hmm. Like, did you ever, like, did you ever get into Salad Days? I feel like that aesthetically would be more in your wheelhouse than two would be. You see, the thing about when you mentioned Chill Wave is like the stuff I liked from that, like there was just more of like a, just the profound sadness and early stuff like that with like Tori Moir or like uh, Neon Indian or, you know, Washed Out or did I already say Washed Out? Probably not. I might've, but yeah, I, I, I think that just the, the thing that stands out to me about Mac DeMarco, as far as like personality that comes across, I I, I remember interviewing uh, Tim from Stranda Oaks uh, back around the time that uh, you know m- m- this old dog came out, and he, he said, and again, Tim is very much on our wavelength that he wishes he had Mac DeMarco to listen to when he was growing up instead of Nirvana, uh, which I guess kind of you know, loops full circle with the Rolling Stone cover because, like, he'd be a lot happier. Um, and you know what? Like, I think that you said, like, Mac DeMarco is kind of the last of his kind, at least in indie rock, that's the case. But, like, I see Mac DeMarco as a massive influence on these guys who are super popular on Spotify, but, like, don't get covered in indie music. Like, you know, Rex Orange County or Still Woozy or, you know... Dayglow, bands like that. Like, Mac DeMarco, is, or Glass Animals for that matter. You know, I, I think that, like, he's become just, like, super influential, not just as, like, musically, but that kind of, hey, we're young and let's just kind of chill out rather than being, like, young and, like, sad and angry. I mean, I think there's sadness in Mac DeMarco's music, but um, I don't know. I, I, I would say that, uh, you know... Uh, I just can't come around to this sort of perspective. Like I, I, I engage with this music and I think about the way other people describe emo to me, which is like, I've never felt this way in my entire life. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't think he's the last of his kind musically, right. but I think the way that the kind of star that he was in the 2010s, it just seems like in this current like media environment, I, I don't, 
see like how someone like him would get as much coverage and as much love as he did 10 years ago. You know, we're, we're in a media environment, like where like the happy go lucky white male dude (laughs) who just wants to have a good time is going to be treated with a lot more skepticism and you can debate on whether that's warranted or not, but it makes me wonder like, what is Mac DeMarco's path going forward? I'm curious to see, is there going to be a shift with him where he's going to have to present himself uh, in a more mature, and I'm going to put mature in quotes, <laughs> type guys, you know, moving. Because, I, I mean, does that make sense? I just, you know, like like that kind of guy who's going to be covering like Puddle of Mud songs on stage. <laughs> Are you saying that he's like the Tulsa king of indie rock where he's like coming back after four years like, hey, what, what the fuck? No one wants to make songs about hot dogs and cigarettes no more. Um, I think what he's going to be like is... You use Father John Misty as like an example. Like I think we also mentioned that Father John Misty had one of the more memory hold albums of 2022. If there is all there is an uh, like a constantly renewable supply of people whose experience with like indie rock like peaked at 25 or 30, and they're just gonna like the same people that they did then. Like, and I think that could be the case with like Mac DeMarco. Like he'll be around and. Every couple of years, I'll put out a new record and it'll, you know, there'll be some jokes and, uh, but it'll be just generally positively received and it'll be, you know, a, a touchstone for people who just kind of haven't kept up with indie rock in that time since. And you know what? Like maybe, maybe the trend will come around where like, uh, you know, Boy Genius out, Tune Yards and Mac DeMarco back in. And then at like 55, I'll be able to like talk about indie rock again. I wonder if there's a path forward. For Mac DeMarco, where he becomes like the indie millennial slash Zoomer Jimmy Buffett, you know, like where he's just going to have that kind of audience and Mm. maybe he just gets bigger and bigger as he gets older, where, because, you know, I'm going to go the other way on my point before, you know, because the critical reaction is just one aspect of it. There's the popular reaction. I do think that there is a market for... I'm just a good time guy. We're going to have some good time jams. Yeah. Let's all sing together. Maybe he's going to be, there's going to be like DeMarco heads out there. <laughs> I feel or like I there's... Or, 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 or they'd be salad heads, I guess. They'd be salad heads. Yeah, I, I guarantee DeMarco. there's already like a name for like the Mac DeMarco contingent, you know, like uh, it, like hot like hot dog heads. I don't know what it is, but <laughs> like I am not at all worried about like Mac DeMarco's future prospects. Just so long... What what I hope he does is he actually continues to like rip off like Mitski, uh, you know, like Mitski album titles. Like this next album is actually called like Laurel Heaven or something like that. I just think that is so <laughs> indicative of like how the discussion of like indie rock goes now in 2022 or what have you compared to like 2014. And that like you know, there's always been like some sketchy stuff like in his orbit, but like the one thing that made people turn on him more than anything is like the implication that he was like trying to like run a foul of Mitski. Yeah. Laurel heaven. <laughs> we dare you to do it. Mac DeMarco. We yeah. dare you bury me at make out river or something. We've now reached the part of our episode that we call recommendation corner where Ian and I talk about something that we're into this week. Ian, why don't you go first? So I mentioned that, you know, I haven't been up to speed on a lot of new music. Uh, I've spent a lot more time listening to TV, podcasts, and 
One particular book that I read during, um, you know, the kind of lull of uh, January is uh, by David Marks. It's called Status and Culture. And it's a book that explains, like, without really embarrassing itself, which is a major feat, how a lot of trends in culture, fashion, music, uh, etc., have this like deep-seated anthropological drive uh, where we all seek status. And this is how, you know, a lot of trends filter up from like the lower margin society or that elite people like um, do trends and people follow them. Uh, You know, there's a lot of quotes from like, you know, philosophers like Hannah Arendt and uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein, but also like Jeff Weiss and Dan Ozzie. It's a nice little uh, combination of like highbrow, lowbrow, middlebrow, and so forth. Uh, Pitchfork's uh, 0.0 review of the Liz Fair uh, album gets mentioned. And, you know, it just plays really well with a lot of the stuff we talked about in this episode about like why certain trends come in, why certain trends go out, and how, you know, regardless of like how you feel about a current moment in cultural history, it's going to cycle back to something else. But also... You know, it kind of wisely talks about how the internet has like more or less made taste irrelevant and how that's actually bad for culture. Um, just pretty pretty interesting text. So um, yeah, let's re- read a book. I don't know, man. That's a lot of work. I mean, I have <laughs> really all of these, is, but you know, <laughs> I have all these Yellowstone episodes that I haven't watched yet. Uh, we've got to keep up for TV cast. Yeah, um, he does not mention the uh, rise of the Taylor Sheridan extended universe, so maybe there needs to be like an addendum. Well, I want to talk about an album by an 80-year-old man because I am the person on this show who talks about music made by 80-year-olds. And TV shows uh, made by 80-year-olds. <laughs> that's true. I'm just totally going for the, uh, is that Octogenarian? Yes. If you're 80? He's fucking nailed it. Nailed that one. Uh, anyway, this is an album called Mercy, and it's by a legend named John Cale. Of course, you may know John Cale from a little band called The Velvet Underground. Of course, he's had a very illustrious solo career, and he's produced many great records uh, by artists throughout history. Uh, this new record uh, has a lot of indie rock people on it. You have Wise Blood, Animal Collective, Sylvan Esso. But it really does reflect his restless artistic personality i mean if you know anything about john kale you know that he's not someone who's going to sit in one place and this is just a weird arty cool sounding record it's the kind of album and i don't want to gross anyone out but it's like i was listening to this record and i'm like i bet john kale has sex to his own music (laughs) because this is just like the kind of music that you would imagine playing like in a david lynch movie while there's like some weird act of copulation going on. It just has that kind of gothy, sultry quality to it. So it's a really cool record. And again, look, as the 80-year-old music correspondent on the show, I'm always inspired by artists who find a way to reinvent themselves, even after after they've proven everything that they've needed to prove in their career. And it it just shows, again, with John Cale, he's one of those artists who is just going to keep exploring, even as he... Well, not even entering his twilight years. He is in his twilight years. But judging by this record, he's going to outlive us all. So <laughs> definitely check it out. It's called Mercy by John Cale. Uh, really cool record. Mm. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of IndieCast. We'll be back with more news and reviews and hashing out trends next week. And if you're looking for more music recommendations, sign up for the Indie Mixtape Newsletter. You can go to uprocks.com backslash indie. And I recommend five albums per week, and we'll send it directly to your email box. 